You have to understand that the house of Israel is a literal, tangible thing. It's a tangible covenants. It's a tangible bloodline. And then the second thing you have to understand, and this is going back into 1 Nephi 22, so we got to get back into Isaiah here, is that Israel was scattered. So this is where Nephi heads next. He says, Wherefore the things of which I have read are things pertaining to things both temporal and spiritual. For it appears that the house of Israel sooner or later will be scattered upon all the face of the earth and also among all nations. So you have to remember in Nephi's day, this is somewhere around 600 BC. This is before the Jews were taken captive by Babylon um, into into Babylon. Uh, So Nephi says, hey, very soon, sooner or later, the entire house of Israel is going to be scattered upon the face of the whole earth. And he says, there are many who are already lost from the knowledge of those who are at Jerusalem. So he says, you know what? There's those Jews we knew at Jerusalem, but there are many of the house of Israel who are already lost and already scattered. He says, yea, the more part of all the tribes have been led away and they are scattered to and fro upon the isles of the sea. And whither they are, none of us knoweth, save that we know that they have been led away. End quote. So this scattering of Israel is critical. It's a critical part of the story because we have to understand that while the house of Israel was predominantly in the old world and in what is known today around Palestine area, Palestine, Jerusalem area, um, that blood of Israel was scattered. And this is how it gets to every nation around the world. We're going to watch a clip here from a documentary produced by the Joseph Smith Foundation. It's from the documentary Unlocking the Mystery of the Two Prophets about this scattering. Over 700 years before the birth of Christ, the brutal Assyrian Empire set its sights on the northern tribes of Israel. Thousands, perhaps millions, of predominantly covenant-breaking Israelites were conquered and taken into captivity. Many, perhaps even most, were killed. The survivors were taken captive. And then they disappeared. This ancient mystery, this 2,700-year-old puzzle, has captivated the attention of men and women for centuries. Even secular scholars have been intrigued with the question, what happened to the lost tribes of Israel? The house of Israel was divided between Judah in the south and Israel led by Ephraim in the north. Israel mixed with their non-Israel neighbors, eventually becoming known as the Gentiles. Israel was then led captive into Assyria and later escaped northward above the Black Sea. From here, they can be traced to the tribes that settled through northern Europe and also north and east into Asia. These are now known to us today as the Lost Tribes of Israel or the Ten Lost Tribes.
diving deep into the history of the scattering of Israel is really where the rubber hits the road and where it really becomes, uh, I think, more applicable and relatable for every member of the church, no matter what country or culture you come from. So let's talk about a few of those places where Israel was scattered. And so in that clip, it mentioned, you know, Israel being scattered into the lands of the north. But something that's important to realize is we always talk about Assyria coming in and taking those northern tribes off, right? Um, so you have the house of Israel, and it ended up being divided after King David's time. You have the house of Israel that keeps the name the house of Israel in the northern part. And then you have the southern kingdom, which is Judah and Benjamin and um, a little bit of Manasseh there. So uh, that northern kingdom of Israel is what was taken captive by Assyria. But what is fascinating to learn is if you actually look into the scriptures and some of the other records, many Israelites were actually not taken captive, but they left before the Assyrians got there. Uh, there is some fascinating research by Stephen Collins, and he documents that when the Assyrians actually got to the land of Israel, they really only found Israelites in significant numbers in Samaria. And they ended up actually only taking 27,290 captives, which sounds like a lot. But you got to realize that a few years before this, Israel, that kingdom had killed 120,000 Jews in war and had taken 200,000 Jews captive. So that's only a few years before Assyria shows up. So obviously the population of Israel was significantly higher than the Assyrians show up and they only take around 27,000 captives back to Assyria. Where did all those other Israelites go? There is a historical text that records that, quote, many of the Israelites did not go into captivity but evaded the calamity, going off with their flocks. The chief of prince whom they appointed could muster 120,000 horse and 100,000 foot. That's an estimated two or three million people. Stephen Collins has done a lot of research about where those Israelite migrations may have went uh, before Assyria even got there, as well as those Israelites that were taken captive into Assyria. Obviously, uh, they ended up being assimilated into Assyria and then uh, scattering all over the world from there. There's so much archaeological and historical evidence for the migrations of Israel all over Europe. Um, some of the kind of little interesting tidbits on some of the culture there that you can see even today is the fact that the lion and the unicorn, those two symbols are all over Europe on the royal coat of arms, on crests, and of course the lion is a symbol of the tribe of Judah and the unicorn is a symbol of the tribe of Joseph or Ephraim. When we look into the scriptures, when we look into history, we discover that the Lord is a master teacher. He is the greatest educator. And he uses symbolism as an important part of the gospel to teach. Now, as Israel migrated from nation to nation, from continent to continent, they left their mark behind on the emblems of the nations, cities and dynastic families who lived there. In ancient times, each of the sons of Jacob, and that includes Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, whom Jacob adopted as his own, each of those tribes 
had their own symbols, their own banners. In scripture, the symbol of Joseph, the son of Jacob, also known as Joseph of Egypt, his symbol was the wild ox with his two horns, symbolizing his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now the wild ox or the bull is an emblem that was carried by the Anglo-Saxon people and it's still used today. Now at times, the King James Version of the Bible translates the Hebrew word for wild ox as unicorn. This is key because in the Bible, you have the horns of Joseph or his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, likened to a unicorn. We're gonna go into Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 17, where Moses declared, quote, Joseph's glory is like the firstling of his bullock and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them, he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. And they are the 10,000s of Ephraim and they are the thousands of Manasseh." End quote. Now, if you've ever traveled to Europe, you've no doubt seen the unicorn prominently displayed on flags, in stone sculpture, on political buildings, etc. In fact, the official animal of Scotland is a unicorn. So the unicorn is a symbol of Ephraim and it is a prominent symbol among the Scottish people. Is that an accident? I don't think so. Okay, now let's go into one of my favorites. The Royal Banner of Scotland features a red lion, and the lion is a symbol of the tribe of Judah. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Judah's blessing mentions that he is likened to an old lion as well as a young cub. In Scottish and English heraldry, we often find a large lion depicted accompanied by what are called lion cells or young small lions. Genesis chapter 49 records the blessings that were given by Jacob or Israel to his sons, the tribes of Israel. Now, often, or traditionally, these prophecies have been interpreted as telling the story of Israel throughout history. But Jacob specifically stated in Genesis 49 that these blessings are about the last days. He says, quote, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days, end quote. These blessings were given to reveal the history and the mission of Israel in the dispensation of Joseph Smith. If we think about it, Genesis 49 is more relevant to us right now than perhaps any other time in history. This is our story. There has also been some fascinating research about uh, connections between the Hebrew and the Welsh languages. There was an article published that noted that, quote, the many points of resemblance between the languages in question have been noted by several learned writers, not merely in a coincidence of particular words, but in a general agreement of idiom and structure. Uh, William Tyndale himself commented on the close connection between Hebrew and English. Not only is there a connection between the Germanic tribes and Israel, but there is also a connection between Old English and Hebrew. 
Some have noted that the Anglo-Saxon language has an affinity to the Hebrew language. William Tyndale is considered with William Shakespeare to be one of two geniuses of the English language. Tyndall, a man who knew seven languages and a master of the Hebrew language, noted how closely English and Hebrew align. For the Greek tongue agreeeth more with the English than with the Latin, and the properties of the Hebrew tongue agreeeth a thousand times more with the English than with the Latin. The manner of speaking is both one, so that in a thousand places thou needest not but to translate it into the English word for word, when thou must seek a compass in the Latin, and yet shalt have much work to translate it well favoredly, so that it have the same grace and sweetness, sense and pure understanding with it in the Latin, as it hath in the Hebrew. A thousand parts better may it be translated into the English than into the Latin. William Tyndale Patriarchal blessings, which declare Caucasian converts to be of Israel, through Ephraim and other tribes, give further evidence that the tribes in the lands of the north were largely Israel. And the migrations of Israel are not just in Europe. Uh, there is some fascinating research by Barry Fell that talks about uh, contact between the Old World and the New World, uh, both in the BC time period as well as the early uh, AD years, actually. So he documents in one of his books that, quote, the New England Celts. Uh, so this is a Celtic community that's been uncovered that lived in New England. They employed an Ogham alphabet of at least 12 symbols identical with those used in Portugal and Spain in the late Bronze Age, about 800 BC. So you have a language being used in Portugal and Spain in 800 BC that was also used by people in America, in New England. Um, you have uh, astronomical observatories like Stonehenge being found in New England. You have just lots of evidence that there was contact between Europe and North America long, long before Columbus. Um, when it comes to this Ogham alphabet specifically, some people might say, maybe that's just, you know, coincidence. Maybe that just, maybe those languages just evolved independently of each other in two separate locations. Uh, but Barry Fell addresses this. He says, there is less than one chance in 430 million that identical 12-letter alphabets could arise independently in two unrelated civilizations, end quote. Just fascinating, fascinating research. Uh, you can look more into his writings. Um, we don't have time to go into even a very small fraction today. Um, but it just gives you the starts giving you the sense that there was far more spreading and, and scattering of Israel uh, in ancient times than we probably have realized. And this is not just in Europe or America. Uh, what about Japan? There is so much fascinating uh, research and evidence of 
Japanese, ancient Japanese customs and their connections with uh, Israel. So, for example, uh, before 1868, there was a festival that would occur where they would tie this young boy to a sacred pillar, and then their priest would hold a knife above the boy. And then a messenger or another priest would rush in to stop him. Don't kill the boy. And then they would release the boy and they would sacrifice these 75 deer instead. Doesn't this sound a little eerily like the story of Abraham and Isaac? Uh, why, where is this coming from in Japan? Uh, but it keeps going. This festival where they would do this uh, ritual with this boy occurred in April, which funny enough, is around the same time as Passover, and they would celebrate it every seventh year, which if you understand Hebrew customs, every seventh year is considered very sacred to the Hebrew people. They call it the sabbatical year. Um, and this festival, you might say, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is a recent thing. No, it's it's over 1,200 years old, maybe even 2,000 years old. So somehow migrations of Israel apparently made it to Japan. Arimasa, also, is it true there's a mountain in Japan that's called Mount Moriah, where, where actual Shinto ritual reenacts the story of the binding of Isaac? Uh, the Shinto shrine is located at the foot of uh, a mountain called Mount Moria. We call uh, the mountain Mount Moria, uh, like the Temple Mount in Jerusalem of Moria. Uh, and... Uh, uh, we chose we choose a boy, and the boy is tied up uh, by a rope to a wooden pillar, and a Shinto uh, priest comes to him, uh, having a knife, and he cuts a, a part uh, behind uh, the boy's head, uh, several parts of the pillar, and another priest comes to uh, uh, comes to them and the boy is released after that this is very much like the uh, article written in Genesis chapter 22 would you be surprised to learn that Japanese culture and religion could have been deeply influenced by Jews from ancient Israel To understand the connection better, we should travel to Issei, home of the Grand Shrine and center of the Shinto faith. Millions of Japanese people make the pilgrimage to the Grand Shrine every year. It is a place of great beauty and great mystery. The layout and architecture of the shrine is similar to the first temple in Israel. The innermost chamber holds one of Shinto's three great treasures, a mirror, just like at the first temple. The building materials, the decorative symbols, even the Shinto way of guarding and patrolling the shrine is the same as the first temple. Separate from the shrine, but close by, at a Buddhist temple, a group of Yamabushi perform a purification ceremony every year. Their outfits resemble that of Jewish rabbis, 
the boxes on their heads, the trumpets they are blowing, and the scrolls they are reading from all resemble Jewish objects. They light signal fires at the week of the new moon and dance before the omakoshi, an object that looks like the Ark of the Covenant. These rituals resemble a holiday that was celebrated in ancient Israel at the time of the first temple and hasn't been celebrated in the same way since. It's so incredibly fascinating and incredible to see the images of the famous Shinto gates. Can you explain how the actual Shinto shrines themselves are architecturally and culturally similar to the Holy of Holies? In Israeli tabernacle of Moses, uh, there was a Holy of Holies and, of, and also Holy Place. And like that, uh, Shinto religion has a sh shrine uh, consisted of uh, holy of holies and also holy place. And there is no idols uh, inside uh, the holy of holies uh, of Shinto religion. Like uh, there was no idols uh, in Israeli uh, tabernacle of Moses and also Solomon's temple. Uh, in the Israeli tabernacle of Moses, uh, there was uh, there were uh, tablets of stone of uh, Ten Commandments, and also a jar of manna, and um, the cane of iron. Uh, like they were not uh, idols, but uh, just symbols that uh, it, to show that it is a holy place. Uh, like that, in Shinto religion, uh, in the sh shrine, uh, there are um, mirrors, a sword, or zigzag thing, but uh, they are not idols. I just want to give you a sampling of where you can find Israel around the world. But honestly, you can do this kind of research in every culture and every country and you're going to come up with similar comparisons because it is just as God promised Abraham. He said, through your seed, I'm going to bless every nation, every people on the earth. So Israel was scattered and you know what? They were scattered because of their wickedness, but God always turns evil for good. Um, he makes good come out of evil. And that's what he did. As Israel scattered, he scattered that blood everywhere so that all of God's children could have access to those covenants. And that is what happens with Israel. So uh, just to briefly mention here as well in New Zealand, um, it's pretty fascinating. A lot of people haven't heard of the Waka Blondes. It's actually different lineages of native Maori. They're, they're just as anciently Maori um, as some of the other uh, families there, but they actually have red hair and green eyes and blonde hair. And they have traceable genealogies that are actually older and uh, better documented than some of the other Maori there. And when you actually get into their DNA and some of them have had their DNA done, uh, they have connections to the Celts. And so we're just going to watch a clip, short clip here from a documentary that was done on some of this fascinating history. But again, this just shows 
sometimes the stereotypes and the bare, very basic history textbook approach to the history of the world that we have isn't necessarily completely accurate. And uh, it's definitely missing this whole concept of the gathering and the scattering of Israel. We've got uh, people in New Zealand who uh, were once described as the Waka Blondes. And these are people who have a different lineage than the Polynesian people. And I grew up with many of them. I knew many of them in my uh, formative years. Worked with them on work gangs. They were the people with uh, red hair, freckled faces. They were distributed throughout New Zealand. And uh, they were Maori, but they had come through a completely different lineage. And a lot of them actually have very traceable whakapapa that's much, much older than any of the uh, Polynesian Maori whakapapa. And they know where they came from. <laughs> We've always believed from the history that was handed down by Piki Te Piki Kotuku, our great-great-grandfather, that we came from the, this ancient place outside of Egypt named ancient Persia. Today it is named Iran or Iran, whichever way you want to say it. This is my dad, Hawani James Ham. His mother was a Waratini. And the Waratini are the blue-eyed Ngāti Hōtu of Whakatāne. I have here a photograph of my grandmother and my grandfather, Te Araroa Karauti. And my grandmother was red-headed and she had the green eyes. And she was a very, very fair lady. This photograph is of Janet. Of my ten children, she was the only one that really resembled me. And she is the only one of my ten children that had the green eyes. But apart from that, a lot of my grandchildren do too. We couldn't believe our eyes when we first saw Monica's family. Right in front of us was a living representation of the green-eyed, golden-haired people we've been looking for. They're not just fairy folk of the forest, or mythical beings. They are real. The redheads of New Zealand are not alone. There are legends and documented records of early explorers meeting the red-haired people throughout the Pacific. For example, when Captain Wallace on HMS Dolphin visited Tahiti in 1767, they noticed that over 10% of the population were white-skinned with golden hair, especially on the islands of Huahine and Ra'iatea, a name that originally meant the white-skinned people of Ra. This is just one of the many sites. I took him to about five different sites. Oh yeah, yeah about four foot, four foot three. And, and you know, well, you see the skeletons, he examined them all, measured them, and he took an eye tooth to England. And 18 months later, he says, Noel, those are ancient Celtic people living in Wales three and a half thousand years ago. This is where they originated from. This is not the only genetic information that links the fair-skinned Māori to the Celts. Jean Dossé did a study on the redheads of Easter Island and found that their DNA was very close to the Basque and Welsh populations of ancient Europe. Two more recent genetic studies have confirmed his findings. Not only did they have 16% ancient European ancestry, but they also had 8% Native American DNA. 
pretty fascinating findings in uh, New Zealand. Uh, we'll close out our little journey around the world here just with Guatemala, uh, just with a statement. This actually comes from uh, Stephen's Incidents of Travel in Central America. It was published in the Times and Seasons, and it actually talks about a legend among some of the Guatemalan people, uh, history in their own history that talks about them being descended from the House of Israel, but coming from a group who broke off at the time of Moses. They say that after they were released by Moses from the tyranny of Pharaoh and crossing the Red Sea, they fell into idolatry and they wanted to avoid the reproofs of Moses, it says. They didn't want to have to deal with Moses and they were scared of him inflicting upon them some chastisement. So you know what they did? They separated from him and his brethren and came to what is now Guatemala. This is in their own history. Uh, we need to talk about this more. And, and I think if we actually shared with our children and made our history and our curriculum, um, including some of these fascinating aspects of the house of Israel, not only would the gospel come alive and not only would covenants and the covenants of Israel become a very real thing for them, but history wouldn't just be a bunch of boring dates and facts and dead people, um, it would actually connect them to help them understand, wait a minute, this is really the story of God working throughout history to bring those covenants and blessings to his children. This is, this is the story of the history of the world. So if we come back to 1 Nephi 22, right? He's telling his brothers, Israel's going to be scattered now here today in the 21st century, we can definitely see that that happened. And Nephi continues, he says, since they have been led away, these things have been prophesied concerning them and also concerning all those who shall hereafter be scattered and be confounded because of the Holy One of Israel. This is key. Why was Israel scattered? Because they rejected the gospel. They didn't have to be. Uh, but they rejected the gospel and they were scattered. For against him will they harden their hearts, Nephi says. Wherefore, they shall be scattered among all nations and shall be hated of all men, end quote. We see this today. Why is there such hate against Israel? And when I say that term and use that term Israel, I'm not talking about the nation state of Israel. I am talking about the house of Israel that you and I are a part of. If you look through history, you can pretty quickly almost find out where the tribes of Israel were scattered and who they are, even though they lost their identity, because you look for the groups that are hated and are persecuted follow the massacres through the Reformation in Europe? Who were the people being tortured and um, persecuted and burnt at the stake for fighting for religious freedom? That was Israel. Uh, look at the Poles or the people in Russia and China today, the Christians that are faithfully trying to preserve their faith amongst the pressure of their communist regimes. That is Israel. Uh, look at the Karen people in Burma or Myanmar. Study their history and where they came from. They are Israel. Uh, it's this war against this bloodline of Israel. It's the war against these covenants that's been raging for thousands of years. So Israel is scattered all over the world. And the dilemma of the last days has been, how do we solve this problem? How do we put the pieces back together? If you think about it from the perspective of so many of these prophets who saw our day, they're looking at our day and they must have been thinking, 
how in the world is God going to put this this country, this nation, this people back together? They don't know who they are. They've completely lost their identity and assimilated into other identities that they they take on. They think, oh, this is me. I'm I'm this or I'm that. And they don't know who they are. How is God going to help them realize this is not who you are? You aren't this um, culture. You aren't this um, person that you really belong to Israel. This is really what your music looks like. This is what your diet and your religion and your faith and your culture. It's You're really Israel. How do we help you find that again? This is the marvelous work and wonder that's prophesied in Isaiah. <laughs> 